0: to so little time before we get cracking i'd like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the kulin nation and acknowledge their elders past present and emerging sovereignty was never ceded and this was and always will be aboriginal land this episode we're chatting about emily st john mandel's phenomenal novel station 11 that explores what our world would look like post collapse don't forget to follow us on Insta for updates and behind the scenes at so solittle.time.podcast and rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So Mandel's story is oddly relevant to us and I truly pity anyone who studied this text during the first lockdown back when we had no idea how the current pandemic was going to pan out. Basically, the plot is that when an outbreak of the incredibly deadly and contagious Georgia flu wipes out 99% of the world's population, humanity is forced to readapt. Mandel explores the importance of memory and shows that some things are universal to humanity, regardless of how messed up the world is. Contrasting the pre- and post-collapse state of the world with intricate intertwined timelines and numerous characters, she paints an incredible portrait of the best and the worst that humanity is capable of.
0: Booyah. Well put. (laughs) Yes. Before we get into the nitty gritty, I think we should talk bevies. But, so we were thinking, that just for all our listeners, what immediately came to mind is what bevy would we want if the world was ending and it was going to be our last bevy on earth?
1: Mm. Well, yes. Yes. And then we sort of built on that theme by just thinking, well, what would be the things that we would miss the most about earth? What are the things that we would remember the most
0: um, about modern civilization as we know it so we have got a major brainstorm for you <laughs> so personally i think i'd miss merging on the freeway and like when you're like <laughs> about to like take off that's like yep
1: when you have like that little moment of panic when you're like is someone in my blind spot is something <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly. <laughs> that's it yes, i would yes. definitely miss coffee coffee oh. and i'd miss the smell after the rain mm.
1: Yes. Especially if it wasn't like acid rain. I'm assuming they have acid rain in the apocalypse. Yeah,
0: probably. Yeah. Um, and the sound of like PTV announcements as well. Like just anything like like those noises, I just think they're so characteristic of Melbourne in particular.
1: Doo 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 Is that the one? That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Like the sound of crossing the traffic lights.
0: Ah oh, the Yes. Um, and then the turbo, like just other like technological th- things as well. Like the, those like escalators, but the really long ones at the airport.
1: Oh yeah. And you step on them and it's like, you're going turbo speed. Yeah. You're like, you're yeah. just beating everyone. Cause everyone else is just walking on the normals. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Should we do the rest in like rapid fire? Yes. Okay. Okay. Let's go. And okay. Double
1: bounced on trampolines.
0: Ice cream specifically. Mr. Whippy
1: cinema movies, the smell of popcorn. The noise of magpies in the morning.
0: Late night drive through
1: Maccas. Clean sheets. New socks. Jumping into the shower when you're cold. Dancing
0: even when the party's really crappy and you just go for it.
1: And anytime in such situations that 1,000 Miles by the Proclaimers plays. <laughs> I <love> it.
0: <laughs> I think we've well and truly covered our bevvies. Yep. So head over to our Insta and tell us what you would miss. What's your, like, number one thing that you'd just really missed your experience on it yeah anyway so to jump into the text and away from our own like little ideas <laughs> yeah. um have you seen this like epig- epigraph that... yes the little the section of the
1: poem by what was his name i think he's polish so we maybe we won't try and pronounce that
0: yeah i think he potentially might be but you know great poet <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. So do you want to read out that epigraph to people that haven't quite read
0: along yet? Yeah. So it says the bright side of the planet moves towards darkness and cities are falling asleep each in its hour. And for me now as then it is too much. There is too much world.
1: Mm.
0: So what do you think now that we've read the text, what do you kind of make of that? Where do you see it linking to the story?
1: Mm. I sort of see that as sort of because Within the story, you have these parallel timelines. We have the post-collapse world and the pre-collapse world. And for me, this epigraph kind of talks about that moment in between, that moment of transition, like the world is slowly falling asleep, the cities are falling asleep. And also that last line, there is too much world. I think this is something I sometimes relate to, but it kind of feels like the poet is saying, you know, too much we've, just reached our capacity as humanity and it's time for us to stop and slow down and regress a little bit because everything's just going too fast and there's way too much going on. And
0: that is, that's a really interesting point, actually. Like when do we reach the, the pinnacle of human civilization? When can we, when do we stop progressing and actually just reach like, you know, the maximum progress? Um, And I suppose he's claiming that that's been done already.
1: Yeah. Which is pretty interesting. Scary. It's the turning point of the parabola.
0: Ooh, you did it! I
1: did it! I I bought back my my methods knowledge (laughs) many years ago.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'd be interested to know when he wrote that though.
1: Yeah, I think it was, he was nominated as a laureate for something for that poem. I'm trying, I can't remember what. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I don't know, I feel like that feeling of like, there's just too much world is something that definitely relates to the last pandemic as well. Mm. Like I know a lot of people were saying when it first happened, like this is a good thing because the lockdown is going to force us all to slow down. Like life on earth was just getting crazy. And now we need to stop and reassess and reevaluate.
0: Yeah. And but, I think people at the time were really keen to see the bright side of things. And it was a general feeling that a few, a few months off might be okay. Yeah. Well, yeah.
1: Speaking of the past and that first lockdown when we all had no idea what was going on, shall we talk about memory?
0: Yes, we definitely should. I think what what sort of immediately stood out to me reading the text was Mandel's kind of handling of childhood trauma. I thought she she did a bit of a a bit of a number on it. Like I don't know. So sorry that sounded really like <laughs> yeah. She's she's messed it up. No, she has. <laughs> I thought it was just interesting that she seems to make this claim that childhood trauma and what you experience as a young person is almost more erasable or it's less impactful than adults that remember fully what happened. And, you know, I haven't actually sort of looked into it or studied it in any way, but I wonder if that's accurate and whether, you know, it is children that are least impacted by really terrible things happening in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And that sort of, you pick up on that when there's like Um, them just not not remembering or Kirsten how she blacks out really difficult times Um, yeah I mean like I guess
1: it does make logical sense for the, the people with the most life left to live to be less impacted by terrible things that happen to them but yeah I guess it also raises the question of you know whether it's better to remember or to forget really traumatic periods Like do we assume that children are probably less equipped to deal with that sort of trauma, which is why their brain is just like too much. Goodbye. Shut down.
0: Mm. Yeah. Potentially. Um, and which, which is better for survival? Like if you have to sort of fight for, for your existence every day, having this big trauma, is that really what's going to be, you know, is that just going to hinder you? Um, Mm -hmm. So, yes, or is dealing with it and, and trying to make sense of the past. Is that is that what Mandel is saying is more important? Because if you look at, you know, the museum at the airport and um, the kind of the relics that are collected, maybe there is a lot of remembering and trying to piece it together that is actually really important to the character's development and them kind of making it to the airport. Mm-hmm. Also, with the airport, I just had this idea, but have you read um, To the Lighthouse? I haven't yet. I'm okay, that's a okay.
1: terrible Virginia Woolf fan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's fine. You'll get to it. But um, the lighthouse kind of represents in that novel like everything the characters want and it's more of like an extended metaphor, I suppose. Or at least that was my interpretation. It's more of an extended metaphor than a literal let's get to the lighthouse. Potentially Mandel's kind of done the same thing with the airport. Like let's get to the airport and then mm. that's everything the characters sort of it just has this cathartic effect, I suppose, in the text. Yeah,
1: it is where everyone ends up, I suppose. And it's sort of heralded as this safe place after they go through town after town of danger and escaping the prophet and yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Which seems kind of ironic, actually, that the airport is where the prophet came from. And yet it's where they go in order to find safety from him.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I suppose it's that like semblance of civilization that it's got going on that mm. you know it has those those like protective features despite its history like mm. it has just as much difficulty surrounding it as as everywhere else it's just that people have created something that's worthwhile mm. through like community and connection there that's very mm. true which collective memory i think is an interesting like side note um and what of the world's memory is sort of of what life was like before is remembered that is sort of lost through generations so how i think that's an interesting way interesting thing from the text how you know some people think that children shouldn't be taught of history and of the the collective trauma whereas others are like no it's essential we have to tell them you know the great heights that we got to so what do you think do you think Yeah. What do you make of that? What do you think Mandel's saying?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think it is really interesting, isn't it? Because clearly for the whole text, we just have this overwhelming sense that there is no way that life is going to return to the way that it was. So, you know, trying to cling to the past and bring back the past by passing it on to your children is just pointless because it's like telling them fairy tales. But then at the same time, like passing on those memories of life before, is also passing on of culture it's the passing on of stories and things that are still relevant regardless of whether or not we have access to those certain technologies and that kind of thing so i think she is making a bit of a statement that it is important to know history in order not to repeat it
0: as well yeah i think you're right that although this this interestingly wasn't like a like a human collapse or a human caused collapse it was sort of a you know, pandemic. I think knowing knowing where we came from, both on a personal and a collective level, is important because I think, in a way, that's why Kirsten wants to know so much about Arthur Leander and his story and his, you know, celebrity because she sort of has that personal history there, and it's a remnant of her past life. And we see the same thing kind of across characters in the in the text.
1: Mm. No, definitely. And I think, yeah, like, Kirsten also really looks for those unexpected fragments of memory trying to spark because she was so young when the initial trauma happened. She's blacked out so much. She really looks for um, just fragments of her past that we wouldn't usually think of as particularly meaningful. So, you know, she looks for gossip magazines and celebrity celebrity columns and things that in a past life would have been so insignificant to her probably even detrimental to her because you know she would have wanted to avoid all of that gossipy stuff but it's you know a public relic of how she used to live and possibly even the life that she might have had if she'd been allowed to continue acting and the pandemic hadn't happened
0: no very true And that sort of leads to the question of what are we actually remembered by? Like our legacy and I think particularly Arthur's legacy and and the people that are lost, they're, they're, you know, they're, what's the word, survived by the sort of weird objects that they leave behind Mm -hmm. and the people that remember them, not their massive contribution or what they achieved or I suppose Shakespeare would be an exception, but... (laughs) um, A lot of the time, ordinary people just seem to be remembered by things like comic strips or paperweights or... So,
1: Ella, do we want to talk about survival?
0: Yes, we do. Of course we do. Um, Sorry, I was was just immediately going to go on the tangent about Survivor, um, but we won't. We won't. We're going to hold it in. What what are
1: your thoughts on Survivor right now?
0: I'm obsessed. I I don't watch it. It's not on at the moment, Mm -hmm. but... I'm a big fan of outwit, outplay, outsmart, whatever it is. Um, (laughs) So it does raise an interesting question in the book though. Like what is the extent that people will go to to survive? Overlapping with the reality TV show, like what emotionally and physically will you do in order to save your own skin? Mm. An excellent
1: point. And I mean, Yeah, I guess that's what Survivor is. It's putting people in a very cutthroat environment, although it's one that's controlled heavily, kind of like the Hunger Games, except you don't actually die. Um, But, you know, in Station Eleven, we have this happening in real life because it's the end of civilization as we know it. And, yeah, I guess, I don't know. In this text, there's sort of two kinds of survival, aren't there? There's sort of that physical, pure living surviving physically but then there's also like emotional survival instead of like preserving your soul and your personality and your sense of self and your moral compass and your moral compass
0: exactly yes because and and i th- almost think that the comment of like survival being insufficient sort of brings the two together that perhaps if we don't have art and beauty and literature then just to plug our own podcast here (laughs) that's our overarching theme if we don't have those things then perhaps purely living just you know breathing oxygen and eating food isn't really worthwhile like maybe one element of survival gives the other element of survival Mm. purpose which is so interesting because like
1: i don't know if the world as we knew it had ended. Like we see so many examples in the text of people trying to search for some sort of deeper meaning beyond just fulfilling their own physical needs, you know, whether that's um, the creation of the museum in the airport or um, the creation of the traveling symphony so that people can continue their art or even, you know, creating a cult um, of doomsday believers in order to believe that there's some sort of reason and some sort of meaning to, to the crap that's happened to you.
0: Absolutely. And that's almost the cult thing, is sort of an extreme version of it. But even people who are, you know, sort of remain neutral or remain without affiliation, they, they do things that are just become tradition and sort of just form the, the habits or the form meaning without it being sort of really intentional, like the bonfire or just not touching that plane that everyone knows is filled with people who had the virus like those things that are just habitual sort of in a way form a bit of a culture and form like a reason to to keep going or like a pattern in a way is yeah that, what do you think yeah
1: and i think that really links into the idea of like survival of civilization as well as survival of individuals like what you're saying is that humans will always find a way to recreate culture and come back to some sort of i don't know like communal Uh, purpose for life Um, and even if you know we don't have electricity and technology and all those sorts of things at the start as you said humans will always find a way to um, reinsert meaning into their lives Um, and then we sort of see at the end of the of the text when they first see those electric lights coming on in the distance from the airport not only is that a massive moment of hope but I think it's also like a really symbolic clear um, indicator that civilization will always return in some form or another.
0: Absolutely. And in a weird way, is it even wrong to say that it returned, but that it was always there that, although it, it returns in that tangible light symbolic aspect, I think there are elements of civilization that we kind of always carry with us. Like even when, even when Kirsten is like kills people, they still have this like tattoo system where you would like within the symphony that you would tattoo the knife or whatever implement you used you'd tattoo (laughs) on on your body somehow and i think that's really interesting that it sort of gives death significance and it, it marks it or the little town that has you know tombstones and there's still things that people continue to do that are sort of that are sort of like moments of civilization, or patterns that we inherited from civilization. It's like we always try to find ways to make order out of the chaos. I think we do. I think that's a really like prevailing message that things survive. That you know our our innate desire to be in community and the patterns of community do survive. Um, yeah, and it's something that we that sort of is parallel with physical survival as well. Absolutely we nailed that topic just just (laughs) mic drop right there Mic drop moving on faith and fate
1: (laughs) yes so on that topic of you know needing something else to give meaning to your life what do we think of the idea of there being some deeper meaning and deeper uh, reason for the world
0: as we know it completely going bananas i think it's it's hard it's hard to justify like so this the cult right they're like you know it all happened for a reason we're the chosen people and and that you know this this must have been justified in some universal sense and i think that's something that people naturally cling to even in our own social space like you know we live we've lived through a pandemic people are like well maybe something good will come of the pandemic or you look you look at like the silver lining and now this sort of extremist view of it, I think is almost, you know how Margaret Atwood talks about in her book, um, I mean, The Handmaid's Tale, that she picks up on things that are true.
1: Mm.
0: I think, you know, Emily, our buddy here has probably done a similar thing that there is a bit a desire in humans to see that things would happen for a reason or see that there's a universal um, or, yeah, a larger power at work. Mm.
1: and I think like the greater the injustice and the greater the the horror of a situation the greater our need is for some sort of source of comfort mm. as well like I agree yeah yeah I mean it makes sense really but it's interesting what you were saying about the pandemic because I remember sort of one of the first things my dad saying when the whole world went crazy and he started working from home he was like oh well you know what You know, we haven't had a recession in 20 something years and life was just going way too fast. You know, it was high time that we had something like this to break it up. And I was like, well, you wouldn't have said that a year ago when you were in the thick of it. You wouldn't have known.
0: Yeah. I had a similar conversation with my mum where we talked about, you know, how this could potentially be a lesson for younger generations that, you know, the world and our social systems are important and need to be protected. And this could be sort of an easier way to learn a lesson that we we have something important in civilization, And I think that, yeah, it's, it's a normal sort of facet of human life that we try and justify or see that there's going to be a big picture and we hope for a big picture. Um, which I suppose gives the cult in the book sort of a lot of reality that, mm. yeah, like, <laughs> what chances are we all would have joined. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> Maybe. I'm not sure if I agree with, you know, plural marriage. and
0: True, like, yeah, child brides probably we wouldn't.
1: Probably not ideal.
0: No. In
1: fact, the rates of child marriage always go up when there's a crisis really yeah so in a lot of countries whenever there's like war the rates of child marriage skyrocket because it's one of the only ways that a lot of families can
0: find like security right yeah you know what else happens in crisis companies are more likely to appoint a female ceo really yes it's called the glass cliff so it's i know i I can't believe my nose tell me tell me tell me more Okay, so it's called The Glass Cliff, and it happens for two reasons. One, women are seen as more capable in crisis. So a lot of the time, the personalities behind businesses, women sort of portray this idea that they could handle a crisis. Two, companies at Breaking Point are more willing to try something different. So they'll sort of handball away from their their customs and traditions of hiring typical CEOs. And the result of that is that women are more likely to fail because they are put in positions where failure is more likely.
1: God. And then they'll be like, well, we should never have had a female CEO. They only stuff it up. Exactly. They're whingers. Whingers. How dare they complain that the entire company is going to poo-poo. Yes, exactly. So, back to the book. Yeah. Anyway. What do we think? Um, about the theme of sort of family and community on that idea of
0: weird cults okay Um, well i think people the prevailing message is that people seek community that families are found in in groups of and collectives and they they sort of hold tight to each other and that is sort of potentially more necessary in crisis than it than it ever is and I think people's blood relationships and their, their, you know, those like typical nuclear families just aren't a, a, like a part. Like they, what makes people family, we've got shared religion, shared location, shared um, love of music. Like there's no element of the traditional family, yet people still find the same connection. And I think that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. But I think also like, I mean, goes without saying that in the early stages of that pandemic, the victims all wanted to be near their families and be near the people that they loved more than in other times. Like, obviously, like when Jeevan goes to visit his brother um, and hides out there for the early stages of uh, the Georgia flu. And Clark, you know, wants to see his boyfriend one
0: more time. Yeah. Like, people initially do go straight for their families. Yeah. and. We did the same. I mean, honey, you, you came back after. Yeah. 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 Yeah, You came back in the middle. Yeah. I I came back when
1: everything started going crazy.
0: Yeah. And I think that's sort of the normal, like, initially you reach for your family, but then when you don't have them, you find family and lots of things, Mm. um, which is quite lovely.
1: Yeah. So in one way or another, you're always reaching for people to be close to, whether that's as a result of direct blood connection or, you know, love of Shakespeare
0: yeah exactly um speaking of Shakespeare it sort of leads us into Mac like, narrative and story so this is the book as like if we just look at it as a construction it has a pretty weird like timeline thing going on because it jumps through time and across people and kind of still weirdly has a sense of conclusion so what do you make of that Hannah what's your like hot take
1: um I mean from a purely like judgmental point of view i actually really loved the way that it jumped between past and present future whatever because i feel like if it was all post-apocalyptic it would have been really depressing and it was kind of like you would have these chapters of the world being absolutely chaotic and then you would go back to a reflection on clark's former existence and you'd be like oh okay i feel comfortable here this is something that i know so I don't know, it just like it kind of broke it up
0: a little bit. True. And an immediate, like, like, it sort of gives you this like uncanny sense quite often because you are always jumping between what you know and what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think a similar thing is like achieved when we kind of lose Jivan for a while because he starts, so I, I like noted this down, that he starts as almost the protagonist, that if you didn't know like the rest of the book, you'd be like, okay, well, this like ambulance guy that saves Arthur, he's got to be a key character. Then we lose said key character for like until halfway through. So we, he's sort of assumed dead or, you know, there's a sense of like, oh, what's going on? Where's the first guy? Like, and I think that confusion is sort of something that like Mendel wants us to, experience and wants us to sort of be there with the people who are also going to be confused and feeling like everything's a bit chaotic and I think that sense is not an accident but really intentional from the author.
1: Yeah you have to imagine that you know if you were in this situation and Jeevan was your I don't know brother or boyfriend or whatever and then all of a sudden you just completely lost track of him because that was what so many characters in the book had with people that they were close to. And then you know eventually found him again like you really get that same emotional um connection that same sense of empathy
0: yeah agreed it's um sort of well well done bravo emily there's also like the comic strip kind of thing like what do you make of that
1: um yeah i think obviously like we see a lot of parallels like for one it's sort of this recurring motif um that's sort of scattered throughout the text, and we're always trying to figure out, you know, what was Station 11, and it takes us a little while to figure out where it came from, and it's something that brings all the main characters together in the end. Um, But it is also used to sort of parallel that new uncertain world, you know, that idea of the undersea and the the people there that are lost without a home and, you know, angry about the world. Um, It's quite creepy, actually, how well and accurately it predicts the way that people respond to to crises, as you said.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so why do you think the book is called Station Eleven?
1: Well, I guess, yeah, as I said before, it's the thing that links all of the storylines together. And I think also potentially like Station Eleven is a bit of a metaphor for the future world. Ooh, yeah. Like what if we are living on Station Eleven or we will be living on Station Eleven.
0: Yeah, or oh, it like it is sort of a like a vision of what the future could look like, mm. and so is the entire book. Mm. So yeah, what if we're already on Station Eleven? Oh, trippy. I yeah, what a shower thought. Like, <laughs> mind blown. <laughs> mind blown. <laughs> Speaking of things
1: that blow our minds,
0: yeah, technology. Technology. We love it. We could not live without it. We couldn't make Um,
1: this podcast without it.
0: No, follow us on Instagram. (laughs) So, (laughs) not podcast. Thank you, Lord, for Zoom. Thank you. So, the machine of civilization. It's a pretty like interesting little metaphor, that I think, that comes up quite a lot about this sort of like being cogs in it, and that it sort of moves mechanically. And I think that's an it's an interesting. Parallel, like you have technology and civilization and potentially, okay, stay with me, guys. (laughs) Emily is saying that we don't actually need the machine in order to have civilization, despite referring to it as the machine of civilization, because what is mechanical isn't actually what our civilizing kind of nature depends on. We don't, we've had civilization before technology and we will have it afterwards.
1: Mm -hmm. Mhm. Mm-hmm.
0: i think you're onto something there Ella. thank you i came up with it right just then <laughs> brilliant no i totally get what
1: you mean though because yeah as we were saying before like civilization and patterns of movement and culture and family units all find a way to survive even when we don't have penicillin and ipads like or lights or yeah lights. obviously those things facilitate it but I don't know, it's almost like we have a more pure version of civilization when there's nothing standing in its way. Mm. Like, when we are forced to adapt to this new and unsafe world, we turn to those more traditional structures, we turn to support networks between people and, you know, turn to relying on each other and all those sorts of, you know, kinds of connections, rather than getting lulled into this false sense of security that all the technology that, you know, does our lives for us facilitates
0: very true mm-hmm. and i'm thinking as well of planes like that you know you can sort of see that condensed because we stop using planes for their initial purpose and start going back to living very simply using a plane as just like a like a bedroom kind of thing or a fridge or a fridge apparently oh, a morgue in like a in a much darker sense mm-hmm. um so we do have this sense of like our lives being really easy back in the present (laughs) Mm. (laughs) like that with technology life is definitely much like much more efficient
1: the question like what would we remember about our lives now in a post-civilization world
0: it does yeah and i don't think that weirdly i don't despite the amount of time that i spend on technology and social media and that sort of stuff i don't think i would be at all i don't think i'd miss it as much as i think i would like modern medicine probably but like the everyday like little technology that we use like a microwave i don't think it would be the biggest thing that i'd miss so do you think how do you think technology is kind of related to like the fragility of our society do you think yeah
1: yeah, I think, well, I think what Emily St John Mandel is trying to do is make us really consider how miraculous all these things really are. Like the fact that right now, Ella, we are in two separate cities, hundreds of kilometers apart, and we're talking as if we were right there in the same room. Like that's, that's whack. That's completely crazy, man. And like, yeah, yeah. But it also, like, shows how much we rely on other people to do things that we previously thought we were capable of. Like, I don't know, to take this example further, you know, I assume that this podcast is something that I do and it's something that I'm fully responsible for, well, not fully, like, half and half responsible for with you. And, you know, it's something that gives my life purpose and it's all mine. But the truth is that without the miracle of the MacBook Air and the miracle of whoever invented Zoom, And, you know, electricity, thank you to Thomas Edison for inventing that or whatever. None of those things would have happened and I wouldn't have been able to have my own purpose as well. So it's like our own purposes are inherently reliant on the life purposes of others. And we're actually a lot more connected through all
0: these different technologies than we think. True. Like the guy who does the museum. like Clark, he his purpose is found in a sort of culmination of other people's what they've left behind and so our lives like we're going to have modern careers and i know this is a bit tenuous but you know the jobs we might end up in and that um if you know students are listening teachers anyone the jobs that we might have in 10 years are you know adaptations and and dependent on lives of people that have come before us and them making progress or them not making progress and it's an interesting comment i think that what's left behind is what we always have to build our lives on
1: Mm. yeah so i guess technology and modernity are sort of not necessarily like they aren't what make up civilization but they're sort of this um enlarged version of civilization it's like those old human connections and reliances that we have on each other but on a much larger scale facilitated by technology
0: yes definitely and yeah love it um art and the sort of constant references to art in
1: in station
0: 11 yeah so i guess
1: one of the key questions that goes on here is sort of as we were talking before um, about how survival is insufficient and that art is something that gives greater meaning to life, it gives beauty to life, um, it gives us purpose. Um, but I think, yeah, what Emily often raises as a bit of a question is like, how arties does the art have to be in order to classify as you know that sort of higher purpose? Like, is I don't know uh, Shakespeare equally as valuable as a comic strip.
0: Yeah. And and arguably they both feature equally as much that both are important and give meaning to individuals. Yeah. And also like oh Viola, Viola who was writing a writing her own play and it's like determined as a suicide note and it's a whole thing. Like, I think that is, is really interesting as well. That somehow out of, out of trauma comes kind of art. So we've got like, like crisis creating art, but also like crisis creating the need for existing art.
1: Mm. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. Like we need both escapism and we need an outlet
0: yes and there's sort of this like dual function that we reach for the art we already know but we also reach for like the creative future of art
1: yeah like art is both a way to block and forget our pain and also to express that pain
0: yeah or even like the newspaper like it's also a means of kind of communication that the traveling symphony was well known they had traveled their their area and it's sort of a something that unites like it's like a communication tool as well.
1: Speaking of art, uh, what about the meaning of images and motifs and symbols in the book? What are some of our favourites?
0: Okay, 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 okay. There's a lot. There is a lot. Um, I think light, as we talked about, a whole heap is pretty clever, like the light's coming on at the end, sort of civilization coming back, that whole thing. Um, but also the prophet refers to his cult as the light, which is... Sort of like they are claiming to be civilization. Mm. Um, and then I love this quote um, about the airport that the airport is a candle flickering in vast darkness and it's sort of a remnant of humanity, but equally it's like a remnant of civilization, which we've said prevails. It's not just um, technological. But yes, that's on page 252.
1: Absolutely. And especially with that quote, I love that. The airport is referred to as a candle, like that more primal form of light rather than electricity. I didn't even
0: think of that. Yes.
1: Yeah. So, like, obviously, electricity and the modern age and the modern world are kind of synonymous in this text. But we can still have light without that, uh, you know, modern technological advancement. And we can still, therefore, have civilization and what civilization and humanity are primarily about without technology and modernity as we were saying before
0: yeah mm. okay your turn hannah
1: pick it pick a- oh okay um i like dogs so i'm gonna say that Luli, the dog is a key motif Ooh, what for what are we claiming her for i don't know because like obviously she's um the dog that the prophet has which is because of the dog in the comic, Station Eleven, and then it's also the name of Miranda's dog as well. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just an example of, like, how people can take something seemingly insignificant and pass it on between generations, between people, between communities, and sort of turn it into, like, everyone gives it their own
0: meaning. Yeah, and I think it has... I was just... Like, thinking about it, and I think it sort of gives this, like, coming full circle effect, mm. like, that people's lives affect each other. Like, that, you know, the name of the, the dog in the story and the name of the author's dog and the name of the, a reader's dog, it's sort of all people, all their lives stack in a way, which is what we were talking before with technology, that one person's life will always affect another's. Yeah. Did my dog just bark? Did you hear, like, did that, you hear that? I hear that. See, Luli. sure. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually Bronte. (laughs) Perfectly timed. (laughs) Perfectly timed. What is your dog's name, by the way? Bronte. After after Charlotte Bronte. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're a book-loving family.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So another one, the paperweight, I think, is is quite an important one because it's, again, something that's carried between people, between stories, and it's one of those, like, last remnants of, of humanity. Or of Arthur specifically, and it's not something he saw as significant. He was giving it away. So,
1: yeah, yeah, it makes you wonder. Like, what would? What if your legacy is something that you
0: completely didn't foresee? Like honestly, knowing my luck, it would be like a scrap of paper, like a shopping list or something. So
1: <laughs> boring. But <laughs> you've like got great shopping
0: lists. I'm sure I do. I'm sure I do. Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of snacks, a lot of popcorn on that. List. <laughs>
1: Yeah, i guess it really goes to show like that we have no control over what
0: we're remembered by very true um what about airplanes we We're talking airplanes about? yes so final motif that we're going to talk about today
1: tune
0: um, like
1: <laughs> really right <laughs> yep. um yeah i guess they're another sort of hallmark symbol of um Humanity and of modernity, uh, but also about like humans' ability to adapt to new situations. So, like as you were saying before, in the in the past slash present, we use airplanes to connect us and we use them to go between different communities, to go between countries and states, and they're sort of connected with that whole idea of international community. And then when the world goes nuts, airplanes become more. I don't know like the fact that they're grounded forces communities to settle down themselves so it's like in the airport when the planes become grounded the community that lives there also becomes grounded they start to use those airplanes for more practical purposes you know to store things to sleep in um and they sort of become more permanent and work in a more local setting so yeah. yeah
0: Oh my gosh, that's very true. It's a symbol of civilization and civilization becomes more local. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh my gosh, links. Oh. Stuff from us today, Hannah.
1: We are killing it.
0: <laughs> Not
1: to our own horns, but two. Really, <laughs> look, I literally just had in my notes the word airplanes. Full stop. Okay. And then I just ripped that out. Like,
0: ripped it out. Y'all
1: <laughs> spontaneity. It's going well. <laughs>
0: Perfect. <laughs> Is that all of our theme? All of our I keep saying themes. All of our symbols. Yeah, I think so. Killed it. Cool. Okay. <laughs> well, on that note, wherever you are in the pandemic at the moment, um, thanks for listening and good luck with with everything. And happy reading. Happy reading.